0: Well, if you have your Bibles with you once more, I invite you to turn with me to the first book in the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 24. If you're a guest with us, we've been studying the Gospel of Matthew and we're working our way through Jesus' final discourse of teaching, known as the Olivet Discourse. We're going to begin reading in verse 29. ...of Matthew chapter 24. And I want to speak for a few minutes on this subject this morning. The coming of the Son of Man. Matthew chapter 24. And we'll begin reading in verse 29. And this is what the Word of God says. Immediately after the tribulation of those days... The sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory." And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. In his book entitled The Book of Jesus, author Calvin Miller quotes a summary statement from a columnist which reads, For us all, the world is disorderly and dangerous, ungoverned, and apparently ungovernable. And the question arises, who will restore order? Who can counter the danger of nuclear war? Who can bring an end to the epidemics and the pandemics of our world? Who alone can govern the world? And he says, the only answer is the Lord Jesus Christ. And here in this passage, in a clear, concise, straightforward statement, the Lord himself describes what will be the most momentous event of all time. His return to earth in divine power and glory to establish his kingdom. And throughout the history of the church, believers in every generation have looked forward with earnest anticipation to the coming again of their Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And our generation is just like the generations before us in that longing. In fact, the Apostle Paul wrote to his young protege in ministry, uh, Titus, and reminded him of this glorious truth of the second coming of Christ. And in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 13, this is what he wrote to him. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ." Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone is the only one who can govern this world. And Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone is the only blessed hope for any of our lives. And while many of us are familiar with the circumstances and features surrounding Christ's first advent, there are not as many of us who are acquainted with the scriptures and what they teach about his second coming. And as the reality of our world more and more mirrors the descriptions found in Jesus' Olivet Discourse, we will find ourselves longing like never before for the return of Christ. And as a result, we should seek to gain a better understanding of this monumental event. And in Matthew chapter 24, verses 29 to 31 Jesus gives his disciples and us a vivid picture of the moment of his appearing, the sign of all signs of his coming again and of the end of the age. And within these verses, Jesus gives us four truths about what that day will be like. Would you notice with me, first of all, at the beginning of verse 29, the setting of Of the coming of the Son of Man. He simply says, immediately after the tribulation of those days. Jesus begins this passage by stating that the setting of his return will occur immediately after the seven year period of tribulation described in the book of Revelation. And he refers at the beginning of verse 29 to those days. And that phrase, those days, generally refers to the tribulation period that Jesus is describing in verses 4 to 28. But more specifically, those days refers back to verses 15 to 21 and the abomination of desolation. If you will recall from last week, that event will be the turning point of the tribulation. And it will take place at the three-and-a-half-year mark of the seven-year period of tribulation. And in that midway point of tribulation, the Antichrist will set himself on the throne of the temple in Jerusalem, and he will demand worldwide worship. And as he does that, the antichrist actions will usher in the final three-and-a-half years of tribulation that the Bible refers to as The great tribulation, a period such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be again. And those days that Jesus is referring to will be the final days, the final days of tragedy that will mark the end of this present world during which sin will be fully unrestrained on the earth and Satan will have been allowed almost unrestricted freedom in his final attempt to run the universe. And just when it seems as if Satan's triumph has been completed, the Son of Man will immediately and finally return, bringing a sudden and final end to the tribulation of those days. But we not only see the setting of the coming of the Son of Man, at the end of verse 29 we also see the seriousness of the coming of the Son of Man. For Jesus says, on that day the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Have you ever noticed when you're reading your Bible, how darkness always accompanies serious events in Scripture. For instance, when Egypt was judged, there was the blackness like night that came over the land. And when the Lord came down at Mount Sinai, the Bible says that the mountain was shrouded in black clouds. And when Jesus Christ died on the cross, the Bible says... That it became dark. And in the second half of verse 29, Jesus describes the seriousness of his appearance. Stating that the whole universe will begin to rapidly disintegrate. He declares that the sun will be darkened and the moon will no longer give its light and the stars will fall from heaven. And as a result of these actions, there will be darkness and fear running rampant throughout the whole world. Now there are several Old Testament passages of Scripture that confirm Jesus' prophecy before he ever gave it. Seven centuries before Christ, the prophet Isaiah predicted this end-time devastation. And in Isaiah chapter 13, verses 6 through 12, this is what the prophet prophesied Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty, it will come. Therefore, all hands will be feeble, and every human heart will melt. And they will be dismayed, and pangs and agony will seize them. And they will be in anguish like a woman in labor. And they will look aghast at one another, and their faces will be aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation, and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. And I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. And I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant. And I will lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. I will make people more rare than fine gold and mankind than the gold of Ophir. 700 years before Christ, Isaiah spoke those words. And although his words applied immediately to the destruction of Babylon, which occurred in 539 BC, you cannot read the prophet's words and say that that was limited in scope to those days. He reiterates exactly what Jesus Christ prophesies here in verse 29 that the devastation that Babylon experienced was a mirror and a picture of the devastation that is coming that this world will experience when Jesus comes in his second advent. But Isaiah didn't just speak to this. The prophet Ezekiel used the same images of the sun and the moon and the stars losing their light to describe God's judgment on Pharaoh and Egypt and also to point to Jesus' prophecy and second coming. And in Ezekiel chapter 32, verses 7 through 8, this is what Ezekiel spoke. When I blot you out, I will cover the heavens and make their stars dark. I will cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon shall not give its light. And all the bright lights of heaven will I make dark over you and put darkness on your land, declares the Lord. And a hundred years before Isaiah... The prophet Joel, he wrote of a vast, incredibly devastating locust plague that would foreshadow the disasters that would take place at Jesus' second coming. And in Joel chapter 2, verses 10 to 11, this is what Joel prophesied. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining The Lord utters his voice before his army. For his camp is exceedingly great. And he who executes his word is powerful. And listen to how he ends it. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. And who can endure it? Warning after warning after warning. Description after description after description. With a sense of urgency for those who would hear these words. That you would wake up from your slumber. And you would pay attention. And you would see that when the day of Jesus Christ comes and he returns. It will be great. It will be awesome. And who, who will be able to endure that day? But Joel wasn't finished at the end of chapter 2, in verses 30 to 31, this is what he said And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth blood and fire and columns of smoke, and the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. This blotting out of natural light is a sign of Christ's return, it's a sign of judgment. Full and final judgment coming upon the world. I'll give you one more example in the Old Testament. It's the prophet Zephaniah. He is in your Bible, by the way. In Zephaniah chapter 1, verses 14 to 15, this is what he said. The great day of the Lord is near. Do you hear that? It's near. It's near and hastening fast. And the sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. And the mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. And can't you see, friends, can't you hear, over and over again, everything that these prophets are declaring are the exact words that Jesus spoke to his disciples right here in Matthew chapter 24. But you know the Old Testament doesn't just reinforce Jesus' words here. The New Testament does as well. And in Second Peter chapter 3, verses 10 to 13, this is what Peter spoke about this coming day of the Lord. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. But according to this promise, we are waiting for the new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. The same picture that Jesus is giving of what it will be like on that day when he returns. When you study Luke's parallel account of verse 29, Luke describes that moment as distress, perplexity, fainting with fear and foreboding. This is how he described it in Luke 21, verses 25 to 26. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. People fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Did you hear how Luke described it? Luke says that people on that day when the heavens are dissolved and Jesus Christ returns, they will literally faint with fear. And when you study that word faint that Luke uses in that passage, it literally means to expire or stop breathing. That people will literally die of fright on that day. Because it will be so awesome, so great, and so powerful. One commentator said, no hurricane, no tornado, no tidal wave, no earthquake, no volcanic eruption, or combination of these natural disasters in history will have ever approached the extreme disruption of that day. But he's not finished. Would you notice also at the end of verse 29, he says that the powers of the heavens will be shaken it's literally referring to a gravitational disturbance. And it makes sense, doesn't it? Because the Bible teaches in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 16 that Jesus Christ is the creator of everything. And in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 17, the Bible declares that Jesus Christ sustains everything. And so without his full sustaining power, gravity will weaken. And the orbits of the stars and the planets will fluctuate. The writer of Hebrews reminds us of this truth, that the universe is held together by the power of the very Word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. And in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3, the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus Christ is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the Word of His power. He speaks to creation, and he says, stay in place. And it does. And what Jesus is describing in verse 29 in this monumental event is that when one millimeter of his power stops upholding and sustaining creation, it will send all of creation into disruption and a tailspin. And that's exactly what he is describing in verse 29. C.S. Lewis speaks powerfully of this event in his book, Mere Christianity. And this is what he writes. I wonder whether people who ask God to interfere openly and directly in our world quite realize what it will be like when he does. When that happens... It is the end of the world. When the author walks onto the stage, the play is over. It will be too late then to choose your side. There is no use saying you choose to lie down when it has become impossible to stand up. That will not be the time of choosing. It will be the time when we discover what we've already chosen. It is a serious day that is approaching. So we not only see the setting of the coming of the Son of Man and the seriousness of the coming of the Son of Man. Third, we see the splendor of the coming of the Son of Man in verse number 30. And this is what Jesus says. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. In verse 13, Jesus answers the question his disciples asked in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 3. And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And notice what Jesus does at the beginning of verse 30. To answer their question, he points back to the supernatural signs and the shaking of the powers of heaven in verse 29. And he does it with the very first word of verse 30, the word then. And he's literally saying, when you see the events of verse 29 take place, then will appear in heaven the sign of Of the Son of Man. And the title that Jesus uses for himself here is used twice alone in verse 30, and it is used six times in the entirety of Matthew chapter 24. And this title, Son of Man, is not speaking of his humanity, it is speaking of his divinely bestowed authority. And according to Jesus, look carefully at verse 30 and the words that he uses. According to Jesus, no one should look for the sign. Instead, in verse 30, he says, they should look for him. Because Jesus Christ himself is the supreme and final sign of his coming. He's saying to them, you don't need a sign, you just need to look for me. And when you see me, I am the supreme and final sign that the end of the age has come. When you see me, the Son of Man, in power and great glory coming on the clouds of heaven, you know I am returning. And notice the language that he uses. He says that he will come on the clouds. And when you go back and you study the Old Testament, over and over again, we see that God reveals his glory in the image of a cloud. For instance, in Exodus chapter 13 and verse 21, it was a pillar of cloud that led God's people in the Exodus from Egypt. And in Exodus chapter 40, verses 34 to 38, God's glory was revealed in a cloud that covered the tabernacle. The psalmist says in Psalm 104 in verse 3 that God makes the clouds his chariot. And the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 19 in verse 1 that the Lord rides on a swift cloud. And the picture that Jesus is giving us here in Matthew chapter 24 is that of the glory of God revealed in the glorious Son of God who will come on the clouds of heaven in power and great glory to execute full and final judgment. Moreover, notice what he says in verse number 30. That when he appears on the clouds of heaven, then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. This is exactly what John saw in the book of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 1, in verse 7, when he said, Behold, pay attention, listen carefully. He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail or mourn on account of Jesus Christ. Oh, friends, the sight of Christ, On that day in blazing glory and power will be so fearful that according to Revelation chapter 6 and verse 16, rebellious mankind will cry out for the mountains and the rocks to fall on them and hide them from the presence of the one who sits on the throne. But instead of being driven to repentance, many on that day will continue to reject him and curse him and blaspheme him and be full of hatred toward the Son of God. But the Bible teaches in that moment of power and glory, some will be brought to their knees in brokenness, acknowledging their need of God's forgiveness and redemption. When they see the Son of Man in His glory and His righteousness, They'll confess their wickedness and their unrighteousness. And there will be some from all of the tribes of the earth who will mourn over their rebellion against God in repentance. And they'll mourn over their rejection of his son. And they'll receive him. And the Bible teaches that many among that number will be Jews. Through the prophet Zechariah, the Lord made a promise to his people about that day. And in Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 10, this is what the prophet said And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. They'll realize in that moment. They've rejected their Messiah and they'll turn to him in faith and they'll cast themselves on his mercy. And at that time, what Paul spoke of in Romans chapter 11 of the fullness of the Gentiles will have come in and all Israel will be saved. This is the second coming of Christ, friends. A day of seriousness, a day of power and majesty. In glory it will be so different from his first coming he came the first time the Bible says as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief that he was born in a manger in Bethlehem he was born in lowliness and humiliation that when he came the first time he took on the form of a servant and he was despised and he was rejected by men He was betrayed into the hands of wicked men. He was condemned by an unjust judgment. He was mocked. He was scourged. He was crowned with thorns. And at last, he was crucified between two thieves. That's how he came the first time. When he comes the second time, He will come as king of kings and lord of lords over all the earth. He will come with royal majesty. The princes and the great men of this world shall stand before his throne to receive their eternal sentence. Before him, every single mouth, the Bible says, will be stopped in complete and utter silence. And every knee will bow. Those on the earth, those under the earth, those in heaven... And every single tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That is how he will come the second time. And J.C. Ryle, in his expository thoughts on Matthew, says, May we all remember this. Whatever ungodly men may do now, there will be no scoffing, no jesting at Christ No infidelity at the last day. The servants of Jesus may well wait patiently. Their master shall one day be acknowledged King of Kings by the whole world. Everyone will acknowledge Jesus Christ in this way. And notice what Jesus says of himself at his coming at the end of verse 30. At the end of the darkness and the desolation of the great tribulation, Jesus says that He will appear with power and with great glory. He will return in power. And according to Revelation 19 and verse 20, in His great power, the Lord will conquer and destroy all of His enemies, including all of the ungodly who followed and worshipped the beast, and He will cast them all Into the lake of fire. And in Daniel chapter 9. and verse 24. The prophet says. That when Christ comes. He will also make an end of sin. To make atonement for iniquity. And to bring in everlasting righteousness. And he will do that. By his great power. And when he returns. Isaiah prophesies. Fred read it to us earlier. That through the power of Christ. He will bring complete peace. In the restored and purified heavens and earth. And in Isaiah chapter 11, verses 6 through 9, Isaiah said, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. And the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together, and a little child shall lead them. And the cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy, in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And I ask you this morning, can any single human being bring about any kind of peace like Isaiah is describing with a piece of paper? No, friends. Only, only the Lord Jesus Christ and his coming can bring worldwide peace in this fashion. And in Zechariah chapter 14 and verse 8, Zechariah says that through Christ's power, He will eliminate every drought, He will eliminate every flood, He will eliminate crop failures, and He will eliminate starvation. Jesus Christ is the Son of God in full power and glory, and He will come on that day wielding the full measure of His power over all the earth. But He'll not only come in power, he says of himself in verse 30 that he will come with great glory. You know, Adam and Eve had a glimpse of the glory of God. The Bible says they walked with God in the cool of the day in unhindered fellowship. The Bible also says that the children of Israel had glimpses of the glory of God in the pillar of fire that led them through the wilderness. Peter, James, and John got a glimpse of the glory of Christ and his transfiguration. But no one, no human being has ever seen the full unveiled glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And no one ever will see it until he returns. And when he returns, his glory will be unveiled for the whole world to see. And do you know what, friends? At that time, no one will have to ask, who is that? Everyone will know who it is. He will be recognized perfectly by every human being on the earth. It will not be like his incarnation when no one recognized him. The world will recognize and see the Son of Man in all Of his glory. Daniel saw a picture of it. He described it in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 to 14. And I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to Him was given dominion and glory in a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away And His kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Coming in power and great glory. When we not only see the setting of the coming of the Son of Man, the seriousness of the coming of the Son of Man, And the splendor of the coming of the Son of Man. Finally, we see the sound of the coming of the Son of Man. Look at verse 31. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds. From one end of heaven to the other. And Jesus clearly refers to the angels of heaven here in verse number 3. And he teaches us that among their responsibilities, angels are God's gatherers. And Jesus says in verse 31 that on that day, they will be used to gather unbelievers for judgment and punishment, and they will be used to gather believers for reward and glory. And did you know that the New Testament is full, it is utterly full of references of what Jesus is describing here in verse 31. And to not wear you out, I'm only going to give you a couple of examples. In Matthew chapter 13, at the end of all of his parables, that's what Matthew 13 is entirely about. It's the stories that Jesus told, all of his parables. His disciples ask him to explain the parables to them. And he gives this explanation in Matthew chapter 13, verses 40 to 43, about the parable of the weeds. And this is what he says. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. Did you hear that? What will be the sign of your coming, Lord, and of the end of the age? And here in Matthew 13, Jesus says, just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, that's what it's going to be like. At the end of the age. And he goes on. The son of man will send his angels. And they will gather out of his kingdom. All causes of sin. And all lawbreakers. And throw them into the fiery furnace. And in that place. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then the righteous. Shall shine like the sun. In the kingdom of their father. He who has ears. Let him hear. Did you hear that friend? If you have heard. If you have ears today, hear what Jesus just said. Contrary to what many think, hell is real. It's a literal place. It's a literal place where every single person who has never turned from their sin and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins and the salvation of their soul and their reconciliation to God will be delivered for all of eternity. And contrary to what many think, it won't be a place where you'll hang out with all your buds that you've partied with and done all these things within your life. It'll be a place of complete and utter darkness. It'll be a place where the Bible describes that the worm never dies. It'll be a place where it will be continually full of weeping and gnashing of teeth, of pain and suffering. A place where eternal judgment will rule over everyone who is there. And Jesus says, if you have ears to hear this message, you should hear what I'm saying to you before it's too late. And what he described to his disciples in Matthew 13 is what he is describing here in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 31. His angels will gather all unbelievers for that place. In Matthew chapter 16 and verse 27, this is what he said, for the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. Listen, and then he will repay each one according to what he has done. Did you hear that? He will repay each one each one according to what he has done which one of us could stand before Christ and face that it's a sobering reality friends it's a sobering statement i'll give you one more second Thessalonians chapter 1 verses 7 to 9 And to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. The worst part about hell beyond the suffering and the darkness and the weeping, is you will be forever without the glorious presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. All you will ever know is His wrath. Notice what Jesus says in verse 31. That with a loud trumpet call, his angels will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. And he will establish, as the Bible teaches in Revelation, his millennial kingdom and his 1,000-year reign at the sound of that trumpet. He'll describe it in Matthew chapter 25 and verse 31. He says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, Then he will sit on his glorious throne. He will sit and rule and reign forever. Luke, in his parallel account, ends this passage in Jesus' discourse with these words. Did you listen carefully to it? It's powerful. Luke chapter 21 and verse 28. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up. And raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Your redemption is drawing near. So what are we to do with these truths? Well, here's my first application point for you this morning, friends. And it's not going to surprise you. You've heard me talk like this before. I pray you would hear me say it fresh and new for the first time today. When you study prophecy and scripture, you are repeatedly confronted with a sense of urgency. Listen, I, I, I read some of these passages to you today. Listen to the words of Zephaniah again. He says that the day of the Lord is near. It's near and it's hastening fast. Peter said, That that day will come like a thief. And I say to you this morning, that you have not only heard this urgency in the words of Scripture, you have heard this urgency in the words of this sermon. And I ask you, how can you remain complacent in light of these truths? How can you remain complacent in light of the near and hastening return of the Lord Jesus Christ? I say to you, unbeliever, this morning, with all of the passion and concern that I can muster in my voice, where is your sense of urgency to respond to Christ? Why are you living and acting like you've got 30, 40, 50 years to come to Christ? You have no idea how long you're going to live on this earth. There should be a sense of urgency for anyone who hears these verses to come to Christ and to come to Him right now, young, middle-aged, and old. Where is your sense of urgency, believer? For those in your family. For your friends. For those you have a relationship whom you know don't know Christ. The whole point of these warnings of prophecy is to spark urgency in you. So that you won't continue to live and go through the motions. I couldn't help but thinking, as I was preparing this sermon, and I couldn't remember if I've ever told this story or not. So, I've been here for a while, so if I've told it, hopefully you've forgotten about it. But when I was a little kid, like four or five years old, some of my aunts had a gospel singing group. And I had a blue leisure suit with the big collar on the white shirt. Now, some of the young folks are pulling their phones out and Googling what that is right now because they have no idea. And I had a little plastic guitar, and I would stand out there on the stage and just play away and sing. And then I would go back to my aunt's house after all that, and I would stand up on her couch, and I would pretend I was Billy Graham. And I would take all the family and put them there, and listen, this is what I would say to them You're going to hell if you don't come to Jesus Christ. That five years old, six years old, that's what I did. And God has a sense of humor. Like, look what I'm doing right now, right? And I couldn't help but remember that story in this passage. And I remembered what the great Puritan preacher Richard Baxter said. Every time you get up, you should preach like a dying man to dying men. And here's the reality, friends. Unless Jesus Christ comes back, every single person in this room, I don't care how young you are. I don't care how old you are. Every single one of us has a date with death. Your pastor included. And every day I'm dying more and more. And my body tells me that as soon as I step out of bed and step on the floor. And every day your body is dying more and more and more. And I am literally preaching to you this morning as a dying man to a dying congregation. And I am saying to you, I am trying to wake you from your slumber. I mean, if I could go out in the pews and just shake you and stir up inside of you. The urgency of this text. Your life would be different. Your family would be different. His church would be different. The city might even be different. Urgency. That's what this text demands. Urgency. Number two. In light of all that's going to transpire at the second coming of Christ, you remember Peter's sobering question, don't you? What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? What sort of people ought you to be? This doctrine is for life, friends. It's not for your chart. It's not for your prophetic thinking cap. The doctrine of the return of Christ is for your life. When you understand this doctrine, it should affect how you live. It should cause you to want to be more holy. It should cause you to want to be more godly. It should cause you to want to have a greater influence on those around you for holiness and for godliness and for good and for the things of the kingdom. And if all you do is say, oh, I got this, I understand how all this works, and you put it on the shelf with all the other truth that you put on the shelf, you've missed the point. Doctrine is for life. And it should change you. It should change how you live. It should change how you view life and how you view others so that you'd be ready for that day. Because that day's coming, friends. And every single person is going to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and be judged by Him. And believers, they're going to meet Him at the judgment seat of Christ. 1 Corinthians 3, if you want to check it out. And Paul says on that day that the holiness and the fire of Christ's eyes will judge all of our works, everything we've done in the body, whether good or bad. And all the bad works, they're going to burn up like wood, hay, and straw. And all the good works will come through the fire like gold, silver, and precious stones. And I believe on that day, you're going to see what your life could have been like and what it was. Believer, you're going to meet him. Now's the time to prepare for that day. And unbeliever, you're going to meet him at what the Bible calls the great white throne judgment. And there, you're going to be judged as to whether your name is in the Lamb's book of life for salvation, and you're going to be judged by the books. And the books are going to be the totality of your life. And in the end, you're going to find that your life could never measure up to the perfection and the righteousness and the glory of Jesus Christ. And you will be forever cast out of his presence into hell. And I don't say this to you this morning with glee and joy. I say this to you this morning as a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ and as a preacher of the word of God. Because his word is true. Every single word of it. And he's exalted above all things. His name and his word. And just as surely. As he spoke these words to his disciples. And just as surely friends. As he came the first time. He's coming again. It's near. It's hastening. And if you're without Christ. You will not be ready for that. Come to Christ now. Come to Christ today. Don't harden your heart in rebellion. See that today is the day for your salvation. Let's pray. Oh, God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you've loved us enough to tell us and show us the truth. We thank you that you've loved us enough to warn us and to challenge us and to prepare us for that day. And, oh, God, we pray for those who don't know Christ today. That this very moment would be their moment of salvation. And for those of us who do, God, we pray that you would give us a sober-mindedness about these truths. That you would help us in these days, God, to seriously consider our lives and how we're living. No God, we pray that you would use these truths to form and shape a people, a congregation, for your glory. And we make our prayer in Jesus name. Amen.